What does this mean for us? It means that Paul preaches a gospel of transformation. When you read his writings and he lays down very clear instructions for the way in which we're to live today, here is a man that underwent such radical life transformation that he knows nothing of cheap grace. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of a three-part series with Pastor Paul Twist titled, Paul's Gospel and Ours, from the book of Acts, chapter 26. Much of Paul the Apostle's story is told in the New Testament book, The Acts of the Apostles. This Apostle's conversation is told there, and we also have a look at his pre-Christ life. He was transformed by the message from Christ as he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. He and his companions were personally visited by the Lord Jesus and told he was going to be changed from a persecutor to a proclaimer, a proclaimer of the power of the resurrected Christ. His personal testimony and evangelism before King Agrippa while in custody on his way to Rome is a case study for all believers to emulate as we share with others the saving power of the gospel. Here's part two of Paul's Gospel and Ours. Christian, if you're to be effective, winsome, endearing in your communication of the gospel, you need to think hard about that gospel. You have to think hard about the gospel. You have to seek to plumb the depths of the gospel, trusting that the riches and the profundity of the gospel is indeed sufficient to speak to any worldview or thought system. That is the way in which Paul enters into this narrative, and it becomes instructive for us. The second theme or emphasis that we note is that Paul preaches a gospel of resurrection theology. Paul preaches a gospel of resurrection theology. Look at verses 4 through 8 again. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. So Paul makes two claims here, and that is that I've always been a Jew and that I was a Pharisee. I had the opportunity to visit Israel for the first time this summer just gone, and I spent many hours in the old city in Jerusalem. And within the old city, I really enjoyed going to the Jewish quarter. And I would just wander around the streets and explore, just fascinated by the layers upon layers of history. And there was one day in particular where I just came across a school. So here's a school in the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. And there's these schoolboys racing around the streets. And if you've been there, you'll know the streets are very small and you can easily get lost in them. They feel like something of a labyrinth. 
And I just observed these young Jewish boys racing around these streets. They knew them like the back of their hand. They were running around like they owned that place. And it just occurred to me, 2,000 years ago, one of these boys is Paul, Saul, running around as a Jewish boy. He's always been a Jew, is what he says. And then he says, more than that, I was a Pharisee. Now, we'll return to that point in just a minute. Suffice it to say for now that Paul wasn't half-hearted in his Judaism. Paul knew the law, and he sought to keep the law. What Paul then does is he makes, draws a line of continuity from the Old Testament to the New. So notice he says, verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's already said in verse 5, our religion. Verse 7, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. What is the, the point of continuity that he's making? It's the very reason that he's standing on trial. Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? It is the concept of the resurrection. Paul is drawing this line of continuity between Old Testament and New based upon the doctrine of the resurrection. You have to understand that the Old Testament espouses a theology of resurrection that formed very much the Jewish hope of the day. Passages like Isaiah 26, Ezekiel 37, and Daniel chapter 12. All of them speak clearly about the concept of the resurrection. Now, here's what's fascinating. The Jewish concept, the hope, the expectation built into the Old Testament is that that resurrection happens at the end of the ages. That resurrection sits on the horizon of redemptive history. That's what they were waiting for. Why has Paul got himself in so much trouble? Because Paul saw on the Damascus road the resurrected Christ. The vision that Paul had was not of Christ on a cross, which is maybe what you would expect. Nor did he see Christ in his earthly ministry before the cross. The vision that the Lord saw fit to show him was the resurrected Christ. And this then forms the basis of his message. So you cannot understand either the narrative of Acts nor Pauline theology without seeing how important the resurrection is to him in his thinking. This is the hinge point for Paul. And the reason it's such an offense to the Jewish people is that Paul has brought this concept, which sits on the horizon of salvation history, forward to the present day. He takes hold of that resurrection, understanding that his vision of the resurrected Christ is supposed to have implications for him right now, and he brings it forward. One commentator says he bursts the bubble of the Jewish eschatological scheme. He says, Christ has risen now. And as you study Paul's theology, as it's given to us in the epistles, he starts to talk about blessings, which according to the Old Testament theology of resurrection, sit on that horizon. He starts to talk about them as present day realities for the church now. 
He says, Christ has risen. He is a first fruits of the age to come. And in his resurrection, there are blessings which sit on that horizon when all of Israel are saved and receive those blessings and the church enjoy them today. And that is a great offense to the Jewish people. What are those blessings? One of them simply is the Holy Spirit. When you look at Ezekiel 37, you know the passage of Israel, the valley of dry bones, and it's the breath of God that enters them and dwells in them. That's an anticipated blessing. And Paul says, Christ is risen and the Holy Spirit dwells in you right now. That's why in Ephesians chapter 1, the particular description that he gives to the Holy Spirit is as a guarantee of our redemption, our end time salvation. The ministry of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us today does many, many things. One thing is that it testifies to the fact that we will one day be there at the end with final salvation. That is the reality that we get to enjoy right now, Paul says. Another one, simply the Lordship of Christ. Again, when all Israel are saved, that resurrection of the dead happens at the end that's when they acknowledge the son of David as Lord. It's on that day that they acknowledge the son of David as king. And Paul ties the lordship of Christ in the Christian's life with the doctrine of the resurrection. That's why in Romans 1, he says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God, which is inherently authoritative and is tightly connected to the idea of Messiah, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God based upon his resurrection. The simple fact that we attest that Jesus is Lord today, even though he has yet to set up his throne on this earth and reign for a thousand years, even though that yet remains future, you and I attest that he is Lord because of the resurrection. Another one for you, unity. When Israel are raised from the dead, when they partake in that resurrection that Paul brings forward for the church, that's when they're united again. All the way back in 1 Kings chapter 12, the nation of Israel divides, north and south, Judah and Israel. That's a great offense to God that his people are not united. As you read the narrative of kings, what you see is that there are times they are warring against each other. When they're resurrected from the dead in Ezekiel 37, part of that prophecy says, in that day, I'm going to bring you back together. The concept of unity is inherently tied to the concept of the resurrection. Have you noticed in the book of Acts how the new covenant community are marked by their unity, their love for one another, their sharing of their lives with each other, the fact that they were of one accord, that together they give themselves to the teaching of the word and breaking of bread, and they're sharing all that they have with each other. There is a unity that's being emphasized in the narrative of Acts, because Luke understands this is one of those blessings that we now enjoy because Christ has risen from the dead, the Holy Spirit dwells inside us, and now we enjoy a unity. It's for the same reason that Paul sees fit to write a whole letter of the New Testament around this doctrine. Don't 
miss how important the unity of the church is to the proclamation of Christ. He writes to the Philippians, and there's so much joy in that letter, but it is not ultimately a letter about joy. The joy arises from their gospel unity. And in fact, he has one issue in that congregation, only one, and it is that there are two ladies that aren't getting along. And he's really concerned about it because they are depriving themselves of a blessing that originally in the Old Testament sits over here and now has been brought forward by the resurrection of Christ. And we, as believers today, get to participate in it. Is there more to come? Absolutely. Have we realized in all of its fullness the blessings of eschatological salvation? No, we haven't. But did something change when Christ rose from the dead? Yes, it did. And does his resurrection form something of the the backbone of Paul's theology such that he proclaims many other blessings that flow out of it? Yes, it does. He preaches a resurrection theology. And by way of application, I would encourage you to embrace a resurrection theology. Don't merely think about the fact that we serve a risen Lord once a year at Easter. Every morning, rise and say, Christ is risen. Read the scriptures of the Old Testament and see what was promised concerning that last day resurrection and seek to find out what it is that the church now gets to enjoy by virtue of Christ's resurrection. See that we are new creations in him and we are already partaking in some form of that which awaits us when he returns. He preaches a resurrection theology. Number three, Paul preaches a gospel of transformation. He preaches a gospel of transformation. Verse nine, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. We understand that prior to Paul's conversion, he was a persecutor of the church. The narrative of Acts has already made that clear when Paul presided over the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. And Luke just slips into the narrative. There was a young man named Saul, and it was at his feet that they were throwing their garments in order to be more agile in their stoning of Stephen. And some would argue that that's a a cultural clue, the one who receives the garments and watches over it, is actually in charge. Quite possibly pulls the ringleader there. We could actually go further to understand just how much he persecuted the church. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And people have noted a degree of parallelism there. As to the law, a Pharisee, Well, the Pharisees are consumed by the law. Everything they do and think and speak is the law. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. It seems to be saying Paul was consumed with his persecution of the church. 
When we think of Paul as a zealous man, that zeal has to be defined in terms of the harm that he sought to bring upon those that were embracing the way. And some have suggested that Paul was actually part of a radical wing of the Pharisees. He says he was of the strictest party. There was one particular wing of the Pharisees that considered it a sacrifice to God if they killed an apostate. Possibly this is what Jesus is referring to in John's gospel, chapter 16, when he says, the hour is coming when they will kill you and believe that they are honoring God. That is maybe the life that Paul was living, considering it a sacrifice that honors the Lord every time he killed a Christian. And then notice that it says in verse 11, he tried to make them blaspheme. The trying, the particular tense there suggests he didn't succeed, that the Christians were faithful to not blaspheme. But we could ask the question, what would that blasphemy look like? And the answer would be, it would look like making a Christian say, Jesus is cursed. That is what Jews and Pharisees considered of Jesus. Jesus is cursed. Why? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. The Lord that you proclaim hangs upon a tree. Therefore, say he's cursed. That is what first century blasphemy looks like. Saul was a persecutor. And then one day he sets out on the road to Damascus. Why did he go to Damascus? Verse 12, in this connection. It's in connection to his persecution that he's on this journey. How ironic that it's on a journey that sought to carry out yet more persecution. In this connection, I was on my way to Damascus and a light shone brighter than the sun. And everyone fell to the ground, meaning this is not some internal thing that Paul is seeing in his head. Everyone was aware of this light. And the Lord speaks to him, Saul, Saul. Old Testament theophanies call the name twice. This is God speaking. Who is it, Lord? He says, why are you persecuting me? Now notice that connection. Who is Paul persecuting? He's persecuting the church. And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. See the connection between the body of Christ and Christ. And he says, stop persecuting me and start proclaiming me. Three times in the narrative of Acts, we're told about Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9 Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. This is the last occurrence we read. Three times we're told. I think Luke is making this a point of emphasis for his readers. He wants us to realize how much this event drastically changed church history. Things would never be the same again on account of this one man's conversion. God would make this persecutor of Christians the proclaimer of Christ. And just think with me about the message that comes after. Now we read from Paul's hand, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
I can't help but think that Paul is writing something of an autobiographical comment there. I am new in Christ. I don't kill Christians anymore. Think about the opening chapter to Galatians and how we read that biographical story and how they didn't quite believe it. Is it true that Saul now affirms and embraces the claims of the way? And see how this Damascus Road experience affects his thinking in every way. He talks about grace so much. But when you look at the grace that Paul speaks of, it's not simply a gospel of grace. Though he does preach a gospel of grace, he also says, my office, my apostolic office, is a position of grace. Paul says, there's no way I deserve this. I did nothing to contribute to the calling that I've received because he knows the life that he lived before his conversion. In fact, the persecutor becomes the persecuted. As you know, the persecutor becomes the persecuted. Five times he received 40 lashes less one. Many imprisonments, the narrative tells us. He was stoned and considered dead. And now he is pleased to say the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ has been shone into our hearts. The language of light that is so wrapped up in Paul's articulation of the gospel is a direct overflow from his experience on the Damascus Road. What does this mean for us? It means that Paul preaches a gospel of transformation. When you read his writings and he lays down very clear instructions for the way in which we're to live today, here is a man that underwent such radical life transformation that he knows nothing of cheap grace. Paul is a man that knows nothing of half-heartedness when somebody says, I follow Christ. Paul is a man who is so marked by his own conversion and calling experience on the Damascus Road that when he exhorts believers to obedience, he only ever anticipates radical life transformation. When I interview someone to come into membership in the church, I'll ask them to tell me about their testimony of salvation, and I'll say, tell me what has changed in your life. This was you as an unbeliever. Now tell me something that's changed in your life. Because there should be a testimony with all of us of transformation that has occurred. Because that is the gospel that the Bible sets forth. A gospel of radical life transformation that does not allow for half-heartedness or limping between two opinions. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. As we listen to Pastor Paul in going through the Apostles' testimony before King Agrippa, were you moved by the spiritual journey Paul shared? Yes, Paul had a heavenly vision, and he was spoken to by the Lord Jesus. He also would soon know that his life was going to be turned upside down, moving from a persecutor to a proclaimer of the gospel. And as the Lord had told Ananias, Paul's minister of healing in Damascus, quote, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, end quote. 
There's always more to hear and learn on this topic and so much more on our website, TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts for a large, wide-ranging library of messages to help you grow in your relationship with God. While you're on our website, would you consider financially supporting this ministry as we reach thousands of hungry hearts with the good news of Jesus Christ? To give a gift of any size, select Donate on the homepage for further instructions. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Join us tomorrow for the conclusion in this series with part three of Paul's Gospel and Ours. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.